Hi, welcome to the fourth episode of the Nifty Fifty Show. Last week I said that we were going east, and so we are, to the largest city in the United States, New York City. However, this story, this episode, is centered on a specific neighborhood called Flushing in Queens. Now, a lot of you may have heard of Flushing. It's where the Mets have played. It's where the U.S. Open is played. And it is also where the 1964 World's Fair was held. It is also one of the most uh, diverse neighborhoods in the United States and probably the world, and is home to a very large Chinatown. But this episode doesn't focus on modern Flushing. It focuses on early Flushing, when Flushing was still a farming community far away from the small but very powerful city of New York on Manhattan. So before we continue on with this story of old Flushing in New Netherland, I'm going to give a brief geographical background. So Flushing is found in northern Queens. Queens is the largest borough in New York City and is found on the eastern side of New York, as well as the northern side of Brooklyn. It's on Long Island. And Flushing is found in the north-central part of Queens. It is across from LaGuardia Airport. LaGuardia sits on the other side of Flushing Bay. And Flushing is home to Flushing Meadows, which, as I mentioned, is where the U.S. Open and the Mets play. It is also home to the 1939 and 1964 World's Fairs. The 1964 World's Fair is extremely important in Soviet and American relations, as well as bringing a lot more international things into American culture. That'll probably be another podcast. But some other things about Flushing. It is the fourth largest central business district in New York City. And the intersection of Main Street and Roosevelt Avenue is the third busiest in New York after Times Square and Herald Square. That's incredible. So Times Square and Herald Square both are on Manhattan. But this intersection is far, relatively far away from Manhattan. Flushing was settled in 1645 and was named after a town in the southern Netherlands. And I'm probably going to slaughter this. It's a very consonant heavy word, but it's Vlechingen. That's what I was looking up and trying to practice. But of course, it became anglicized into Flushing. Flushing was absorbed into kind of the greater community of Queens, which was then integrated into New York City in the famous consolidation of 1898. Today, Flushing is famous for its immigrant community, notably for its Koreans and Chinese. And as a way of a random fact, it was home to the first commercial tree nurseries in the United States. So Flushing has always been an important part of the New York City area. As I mentioned, it is relatively far from Manhattan. It is 10.5 miles from the Battery as the crow flies, the Battery being the southern tip of Manhattan. And despite being named after a Dutch city and being nominally Dutch in a Dutch colony, most of the residents were British settlers from Connecticut. Now, the town charter was specifically unique among colonial towns, and even unique within New Netherlands, that the town charter allowed for freedom of religion as practiced in Holland. And that's a very key point, because our story today talks about religious freedom and the document, the Flushing Remonstrance. We tend to think that religious freedom was pioneered by the pilgrims and the Puritans who fled England for Massachusetts, 
New England. However, they were tolerant only to themselves, which, as we'll find out as this story elaborates on another religion that was particularly reviled in colonial times. However, despite the liberalness of the town charter, the director general, Peter Stuyvesant, had issued a proclamation prohibiting Quakers from being harbored in the colony. And this is the religion that was really not welcome in many places in colonial America. Quakers are the informal term for members of the Religious Society of Friends, and they were very distinct in their theology and in their doctrine. One of the sticking points is that Quakers believe one can have a personal relationship with God without clergy or a strict hierarchy. This flies in direct opposition to most, if not all, of the major religions at the time. By this time, you have the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, a lot of Protestant churches, all of them have some form of clergy and a very strict hierarchy, specifically in England with the Anglican Church. So, of course, the Quakers are not welcome in England. They're not really welcome in many Catholic-majority countries either. So they're very much fringe members of communities. Today, they are still a very small group of people with roughly 380,000 members. Although today they are marked by pacifism and other similar attitudes, in the 17th century, they were seen as being very belligerent and as rabble-rousers. They were very aggressive in proselytizing their religion. Perhaps the most famous Quaker that most American students would have heard about is William Penn, who founded the colony of Pennsylvania. Now, with this idea of being belligerent rabble-rousers, their reputation often preceded them. So people often had an idea of what a Quaker was before an actual Quaker came into the general area. Many English colonies, the exception being Rhode Island, had just banned them outright. Very friendly folk. So Quakers, being on the fringe, then began to see New Netherland as a refuge, as a safe place. However, as mentioned earlier, Peter Stuyvesant was known for his attempts to create a religious homogeneity in the colony. He did not want any of this liberal freedom of religion that was practiced back home in the Netherlands at the time, the Netherlands being a refuge for many religions in Europe at the time. It's why Amsterdam had a thriving Jewish culture and Jewish community, as well as a lot of these splinter Protestant groups. And lest we forget, the pilgrims originally fled England for Leiden, a city in the Netherlands, and eventually went back to England after fearing that their children would become too integrated into Dutch culture, and then they came to America. Despite Peter Stuyvesant's attempts to create this religious homogeneity, he had also tried to ban Jews from settling in New Amsterdam, but many of the settlers wanted to emulate the Netherlands and its religious freedom. This was evident across many of the small towns surrounding New Amsterdam. Now, this doesn't mean that there was discrimination. Obviously, there was. And it, you can see it starts from the top, right? Peter Stuyvesant was trying to ban Jews, trying to ban Quakers, probably trying to ban anybody he didn't agree with. But many people disagreed with him and there, therefore flaunted his policies. So in 1656, 
Quakers were becoming more and more threatened in Boston, the capital of the colony of Massachusetts. Many of the Quakers would return to England. However, England was the same, or if not worse, than Massachusetts, so they came back to the United States. Many of them settled in Flushing by 1657. Now, there was one man in the town of Flushing named Henry Townsend who allowed Quakers to use his home for meetings. It had been very difficult for many of these Quakers to, uh, I guess, arrange for a place to meet, so often they did so informally in people's homes. Henry Townsend was eventually found out and reported back to Peter Stuyvesant. Peter Stuyvesant ended up fining Henry Townsend and banished him to the Netherlands. Very odd choice. Henry Townsend is obviously English. He cannot speak Dutch, and yet he is forced to go to the Netherlands. I guess it makes sense in terms of colonial policies. However, this caused a massive, massive problem. Because now the entire town of Flushing, which was very small, and now they've lost a main person from their community, they are now mad. So in response, many residents of Flushing came together to write what is now known as the Flushing Remonstrance. And this was signed in direct opposition to the Director General Peter Stuyvesant and his policies. Up until Peter Stuyvesant, the Director Generals of the colony had been very laissez-faire. Now, this document, the Remonstrance, was signed by 30 residents. Stuyvesant was furious. And that he declared on March 13, 1658, as a day of prayer to repent. This was a very common practice. If you read anything about the Puritans and the Salem witch trials, they were well known for having these days of thanksgiving, days of prayer, days of repentance, where the whole day you would essentially fast and pray for the absolution of your sins. Stuyvesant was essentially pointing the finger at Flushing and saying, you are all wicked sinners and you need to repent and we're having this day specifically for you. And he went a step further in his declaration and said, any and all troubles that the colony has had recently are a direct result of your sins. And it is a result of God's justice against you, the community of Flushing, for tolerating Quakers. Now, they didn't take too well to this, the community of Flushing, but it did not stop there. Peter Stuyvesant eventually persecuted all of the signers of the Flushing Remonstrance until they all essentially recanted. And then he replaced all of the local leaders who had been elected or were members of the community with Dutch members, Dutch people from New Amsterdam, essentially people that would do his bidding. This did not solve his problems because the tension continued and Stuyvesant was becoming well-known in Amsterdam because now Henry Townsend is back in the Netherlands. He's telling them everything going on. And by now, they're also receiving other reports of his religious persecution. Henry Townsend was not the only one arrested. Four years after Stuyvesant's day of prayer, a man by the name of John Bowne was arrested for abetting Quakerism. Now, they make it sound so drastic and dramatic, but essentially John Bowne had a wife who was Quaker. Obviously, John was not going to divorce her. He loved her. He may not have been part of the religion at this time, but he was going to support her, and he allowed her and her fellow 
Quakers to hold meetings in the house. Now, once again, Stuyvesant becomes really uptight about all of this, and he has John Bound jailed and then deported, not to England, but to the Netherlands, to await trial, at which point he would come back to New Amsterdam. However, John was much more of a rabble-rouser than Henry Townsend, and he stirred up quite a furor in Amsterdam. He kind of was the squeaky wheel to the Dutch West India Company. The Dutch West India Company was the nominal group in charge of the colony. They didn't really have a strict government. It was more of a corporate colony, if you will. And their initial suggestion was that John and his family to move to Holland if they wanted a more tolerant atmosphere. And John keeps saying, well, isn't New Netherland essentially New Netherland? The same policies, the same freedom of religion. They didn't know quite what to say because now they know that there's dissent within their colony. However, Peter Stuyvesant is not a man people generally want to cross. However, in 1663, the, the company, the Dutch West India Company, wrote to Peter Stuyvesant and told him to, quote, allow everyone to have his own belief as long as he behaved quietly and legally, gave no offense to his neighbors, and did not oppose the government, end quote. It's a pretty clear directive from the head honchos in Amsterdam. However, the trial of John Bound continues a year later in 1664. John refuses to recant at the trial. He was then acquitted by the local chamber. I mean, this local chamber is made up of his peers, people he knows. And in fact, the chamber took it a step further and recommended to Stuyvesant that he be the tolerant one. Now, we don't get much of a continuation of the story because eventually, under Peter Stuyvesant's rule, the British take control of the colony and there's a swap of land. The entire colony of New Netherland is traded for a tiny island in the East Indies that is the home of nutmeg, which was extremely valuable at the time. So, even though Stuyvesant essentially hands over New Amsterdam to the British, in the treaty that was signed between the colony and the new rulers, religious freedom was explicitly given to the Dutch colony, that the same policies that they had had would continue. This is extremely important because the Netherlands was known for being the most tolerant nation in Europe during this time. Religious freedom was extremely liberal for the time relative to a lot of the policies of other nations, especially when the nations were going to war over religion. This cements religious tolerance in New Amsterdam, which becomes New York. And it cements New York as the tolerant city in the British colonies. So the Flushing Remonstrance demonstrated others were willing to stand up for other people of a different faith. Most of the time when we talk about religious freedom up until this moment, it's people of the religion trying to stand up for themselves. But in Flushing, the neighbors, who were most likely Anglican, stood up for their Quaker neighbors. And this sounds really banal in today's standards, that other people would stand up for others. However, during the colonial times, when you could be deported to a place you didn't even speak the language or even know anything about, the neighbors stood up for their neighbors. 
It's really impressive, and it's not really a story that you hear a lot of, especially in history class. It's just kind of assumed that the freedom of religion distills down through the decades, starting with the Pilgrims and the Puritans, but it really is cemented in Flushing, New York. And eventually, the Flushing Remonstrance becomes a template and a precursor to the First Amendment. It is documented that the people who drafted the Constitution and who were coming up with these ideas specifically relied on the Flushing Remonstrance. However, even though it's really important, it is not very well known in American history. And in fact, there is a copy of it in the New York State Capitol, but it is rarely displayed in public, if ever. There's two really great books if you're interested in learning more about this by the author Russell Shorto. There's one book called Amsterdam, and it's a history of Amsterdam in relation to the concept of liberalism. And then another on New York called The Island at the Center of the World. It focuses on the Dutch period of New York. With that in mind, I think it is really relevant to read the actual document because it's fascinating. It says, quote, Right Honorable, you have been pleased to send us a certain prohibition or command that we should not receive or entertain any of those people called Quakers, because they are supposed to be, by some, seducers of the people. For our part, we cannot condemn them in this case, neither can we stretch out our hands against them. For out of Christ God is a consuming fire, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We desire, therefore, in this case, not to judge, lest we be judged, neither to condemn, lest we be condemned, but rather let every man stand or fall to his own master. We are bound by the law to do good unto all men, especially to those of the household of faith. And though for the present we seem to be unsensible for the law and the lawgiver, yet when death and the law assault us, if we have our advocate to seek, who shall plead for us in this case of conscience betwixt God and our own souls, the powers of this world can neither attach us, neither excuse us. For if God justify, who can condemn? And if God condemn, there is none can justify. And for those jealousies and suspicions which some have of them, that they are destructive unto magistry and ministry, that cannot be, for the magistrate hath his sword in his hand, and the minister hath the sword in his hand. As witness those two great examples, which all magistrates and ministers are to follow, Moses and Christ, whom God raised up, maintained, and defended against all enemies, both of flesh and spirit. And therefore that of God will stand, and that which is of man will come to nothing. And as the Lord hath taught Moses, or the civil power, to give an outward liberty in the state, by the law written in his heart, designed for the good of all, and can truly judge who is good, who is evil, who is true and who is false, and can pass definitive sentence of life or death against that man, which arises up against the fundamental law of the state's general. So he hath made his ministers a savor of life unto life, and a savor of death unto death. The law of love, peace, and liberty in the states extending to Jews, Turks, and Egyptians, as they are considered sons of Adam, which is the glory of the outward state of Holland, so love, peace, and liberty, extending to all in Christ Jesus, condemns hatred, war, and bondage. And because our Savior saith it is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him by whom they cometh, our desire is not to offend one of his little ones, in whatsoever form, name, or title he appears in, whether Presbyterian, Independent, Baptist, or Quaker, but shall be glad to see anything of God in any of them 
desiring to do unto all men as we desire all men should do unto us, which is the true law both of church and state. For our Savior saith, This is the law and the prophets. Therefore, if any of these said persons come in love unto us, we cannot in conscience lay violent hands upon them, but give them free egress and regress unto our town and houses, as God shall persuade our consciences, for we are bound by the law of God and man to do good unto all men and evil to no man. And this is according to the patent and charter of our town, given unto us in the name of the States General, which we are not willing to infringe and violate, but shall hold to our patent and shall remain, your humble subjects, the inhabitants of Flushing. Written this 27th of December in the year 1657. End quote. So you can see they were very explicit. They were very quick to name certain religions and point out that we are being directed by God according to our consciences. They don't want to offend God, but yet they also back up their statement. They, our town charter was given to us by the states general. It was approved by them. So now, now we are accusing you, Peter, of transgressing against God and the states general. No wonder Stuyvesant was so mad. But there it is. The foundational document for religious freedom in the United States of America. You can actually go see John Bound's house. That's just off the seven line. It's about a 10 to 15 minute walk. And it is one of the oldest houses of worship in the United States. It's impressive what you can find in New York City especially when you leave Manhattan. But it's also impressive to see the legacy that we experience every day because of this document. So thanks to these brave people who stood up for their friends and neighbors. And we'll see you next time. We're going to move on back to the Midwest for some more people who run into governmental problems. Well, not people, but two states who have to duke it out over a piece of land. It's going to be exciting. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time. 